Hello, welcome to the Comparative Agility Podcast. My name is Simon Hilton, and in this series we'll be talking with world leaders in agility to help understand how we can make continuous improvement a part of your company's DNA. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Stephen Wolf, and we talk about the Inspired Teams framework and how team emotional intelligence can help teams be more effective and self-organized in today's work environment. Hey, Steve, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, thank you for joining me. Um, we're going to be spending a little bit of time talking about your work with uh, inspired teams. Um, one of the, the capabilities that we've uh, got available on the Comparative Agility uh, website. Um, so just wanted to get, say, say g'day, give a bit of an introduction to, to each of us. So I think I've got some slides here, but how did you come to inspired teams? I came to inspired teams actually through my original work on team emotional intelligence. So my dissertation was on teams and a colleague of mine and I, we published an HBR article in the early 2000s on team emotional yep. intelligence. And then um, Inspired Teams is the next iteration of that, which incorporates some agile concepts into it. Yeah, because that's a big part of uh, self-organizing teams is them to be able to have some sort of emotional uh, literacy so they can they can self-organize and work together on complex problems so I can see how it really those two things fit together and that's what you're saying there that agility and that team emotional intelligence are quite tightly intertwined yeah absolutely and the, the emotional part turns out to be a really critical piece of making teams work well and um, in my experience teams are not really good at building a culture that processes the emotional elements of the team very well. Yeah, and that we just expect a lot of teams that just that, that stuff just happens. You could take someone, they're being hired for a role, they get thrown into a team, it'll just work itself out. Um, but but there's a bit more to it than that. Um, and you just mentioned processing of, of events, um, of uh, trauma, if there's even something that happens in the market or something like that. And and being able to work effectively to move through that and, and um, be effective as a team. Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of the Inspired Teams framework is building a culture that helps teams deal with the challenges that they naturally face and the failures that they face and the events that come in and do it in an optimistic way so yeah. that it creates energy rather than saps energy from the team. And that really plays into the agile concepts of uncertainty, you know, the whole VUCA kind of, you know, volatility, uncertainty, et cetera. We're going to have failures. We're going to have to learn and be positive about when things don't go the way that we expected. But okay, so how can we use this for a force for good in our team as opposed to sapping energy and, and, and apathy and, and, and maybe even distrust amongst our team members and, and the organization really at a whole level? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay. So let me start sharing my, my slides we put together for, uh, for, for this chat, we put together a few. Here they are. Whoops, get rid of that. Okay, can you see my screen? I, I can. Great, awesome. So let's just introduce ourselves. Uh, this is a, a 
Stephen B. Wolf, author of the Inspired Teams uh, um, uh, framework, but also the Team Emotional Intelligence uh, body of work that uh, you mentioned came out of Harvard Business Review. Uh, my name's Simon Hilton. I'm an Agile coach and head of product management at a company called Willow in Sydney. And uh, today we're just going to talk a bit more about that. So we just talked about how Inspired Teams came from a very long um, history of research of yourself and others and and not it, it's almost came in parallel or or from agility it, they weren't together it, it, this doesn't come out of agility sorry it's something that's just an innate part of teams and organizations is that correct so in, in inspired teams incorporates the team emotional intelligence and then i've taken the concepts from the agile practitioners and what I've seen that makes agile work really well and incorporated into the team emotional intelligence framework yeah. and reframed it and changed a little bit of the terminology to be more in line with agile and it's now inspired teams. So it's kind of a marriage of mm. team emotional intelligence with agile. Okay. So can we talk a little bit about, I mean, the term team emotional intelligence, I don't think people will be really familiar with it. How did, how did team emotional intelligence come out? So team, team emotional intelligence, um, my colleague, Vanessa Druskett was working at Case Western and she was asked to write a book chapter on emotional intelligence by Dan Goleman. You know, he asked her to write a book chapter at the team level. And so she and I were both colleagues as doctoral students. And so she asked me, would I like to join her? And we put it together um, back in 2000, 1999, something like that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's how it, that's how it came out. And we've been using it for what, 19, 18 years now. And we've done research on it and have, have, developed the framework the team emotional intelligence framework over the years so so that's where that's where that came from it was trying so to most people as you pointed out would be familiar with the individual emotional intelligence it was quite a big thing as you pointed out what early 2000s around the concept that uh you had kind of intellectual intelligence which is you know you know a lot of stuff but the emotional intelligence of uh, being able to understand your emotions, regulate them, and actually use them effectively in your day-to-day -day, um, uh, practices and methods. So, but but from what I understand, that that, that doesn't directly translate to a team. Just because you're good at your personal emotional intelligence doesn't mean you're suddenly a whiz at a team level. Yeah, absolutely. And and first of all, I just want to clarify that there's confusion about the difference between team emotional intelligence and individual emotional intelligence. So team emotional intelligence has nothing to do with the individuals. Mm. It's a team level concept. It's a team level ability to build a culture that's healthy emotionally, basically, mm -hmm. where people can discuss things that are difficult and people can express themselves and where challenges are not you know, um, detrimental to the team, but they see them in an optimistic, like those types of things, where they can build relationships outside the team. So it's really building that team culture. Now, interestingly, we've done research on 
individual emotional intelligence and its connection to team emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there's very, very little, if any, correlation between the level of individual emotional intelligence and the level of team emotional intelligence. The only mm -hmm. place that there is a correlation is in the team leader. So the so if the team leader has more emo individual emotional intelligence, the team will tend to be more have more team emotional intelligence. But it's not about the collection of individuals and their emotional intelligence. It's much more than that. Yeah, that's a really, really intriguing concept because I've seen it come up again and again and again that a team is more than just a collection of individuals. Mm -hmm. It has, it's almost like an energy system or its own organism, which needs to, has its own needs. It has its own, um, uh, to, needs to be fed. It needs its own, uh, it has its needs to achieve things, etc. But we often just think when we look at people in a team, we go, well, it's Dave, Jan, Terry, you know, Tiffany, but there's actually that team has its own, its own, own requirements as well and what I'm hearing from you is that we can't just add up those people and suddenly we go okay uh, all uh, the sum of the team emotional intelligence isn't just each individual but there's the way that the whole team um, processes engages and, and kind of uh, exists really inside the organization absolutely and and if I had to say anything about um, some of the traps and some of the mistakes that people make in working with a team, it's making the assumption that it is the collection of individual talents. Mm. There's something much, much more profound and deeper about the way a team works that transcends the individuals. And it's hard for people to understand that, but it's, it's very powerful. Um, I think I've seen that in my own coaching and I've probably been guilty of that actually in, even in my own coaching ability, it's just, okay, so that's the HR team or that's the marketing team. And, but even just saying that like the marketing team in one organization is going to be completely different to the marketing team in another organization based upon the, the synergy that's going on of the team members, of the environment, of the way that um, uh, problems are dealt with conflict, all those kinds of things, which means it does actually require each team its own, um, and this is where I'd like to kind of understand from your point of view, how do we address that, that uh, metaphysical kind of object of teams um, day to day rather than just saying it's because it, because people they often need something to look at, they need something to address and talk to. How would you, is there any advice you want to give us around how we even come to start addressing the team before we start thinking about its emotional intelligence? Start addressing well, the, the emotional intelligence is a team level mm -hmm. concept that, that's important to, um, to look at when you're trying to address the entire team. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the Inspired Teams framework a little bit later, yep. you'll see it's really kind of a map for where a team can focus its attention as a team yep. to help it build an environment where it can it can thrive and where emotions are processed effectively and where there's transparency so things are not you know below the surface but they're able to be shared by team members so 
the whole inspired team inspired teams framework is which incorporates the team emotional intelligence is the way that you get to that team level construct so you know one of the things that um that i always tell teams that i'm working with so you know they will come to us with a a problem so for example you know there's slackers in the teams or mm -hmm. there's there's um you know a dysfunctional member or that kind of issue that they have and they they attribute it to the individual person yep or there's conflict in the team and they attribute it to the team members not having the conflict resolution skills that they need mm -hmm. that's not the place to look and so the first thing that i always tell my teams is i ask them so what are you as a team doing that contributes to that individual's behavior mm -hmm. how are you creating an environment that brings out the behavior that you're trying to correct and almost yep. always it's a function of the environment the team's creating so now you know I'll, i will say um i'll put a little caveat in there obviously that's not a hundred percent of the time yeah it's a lot more than people give credit to so if i had to put a number on it 90 to 95 percent of the time it's the team environment there's five percent of the time when it's really an individual that's problematic yeah i i would say through my experience I've, i i could agree with that um and even just to acknowledge that there is a team and there is an environment is often not even addressed saying oh this person's doing that person's doing that well actually what are we even it's almost like a garden are we even tending to our garden um, mm -hmm. all around us to make sure that you know we are actually uh there there is a bountiful supply of um, fruits being delivered um i'm going off on a tangent here with some metaphors yeah. but at the end of the oh. day like i, I I'm, not, I'm not even sure a lot of teams are aware there is an environment to tend to let alone is that environment a healthy one which promotes behaviors and the outcomes that we are looking to achieve and I think you probably see that in a lot of movements today with companies focusing so much on culture, focusing so much on how we work together. Um, and that's come a lot from the agile space of, mm -hmm. of team agreements and self-organizing teams, cross-functionality, which uh, lends itself very well to these. You can see why these two topics are um, so well uh, crossed over and synergistic because they help each other very well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and here's the thing about people know about culture but here's, here's the thing, what type of norms, what type of interaction rules, what, what makes up the culture? Mm -hmm. It's not something that people have, have an instinctual understanding of. How to create really the most effective culture for your team so that you get psychological safety so that you reduce conflict so that you reduce dysfunctional behavior so that you get innovation what are those norms so people mm -hmm. know about culture but they don't really have a framework that allows them to build it in a way that's you know researched and that they understand it's kind of trial and error so they might eventually get there yep. but 
it's going to take a while. Yeah. Well, let's just dive into that point a bit from before about how teams are changing. Um, what we see here on the slide is a classic you know, command and control um, versus servant leadership kind of structure. And this is the way that teams and environments are changing right now in the workplace. In fact, they probably already have changed. But in a, in a traditional scenario, you'd have the executive telling the manager, telling the staff what to do, very much do this. Um, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it. But in complex organizations where the problem outcomes aren't known and the, the, the solutions aren't known, we're seeing an almost inverse relationship there where it's the executive and the upper leadership, which are its responsibility to empower team members and enable them to solve complex problems. And this is where it comes back to what we're talking about before with emotional intelligence, um, sorry, sorry, team emotional intelligence is teams need to be able to effectively work together because problems aren't solved by one person. They're sold by entire teams. And the only way for those teams to effectively interact and really get to the hard questions, there's a lot of easy questions to solve, of, yep. um, which, are, which are polite, where there's no conflict. But I think there's one term that came out of psychological safety, which really hit me, was productive conflict. It's hmm. only through conflict that we actually challenge ideas, we discard um, uh, maybe wrong ideas or the ones that aren't going to work and we get to a positive outcome when we can actually effectively as a team work together but the only way we're able to do that is through high trust environments through having great emotional intelligence where we are we're working on the issues we're not worried about um, the the hurting or the um uh, we're, we're productively working together in an emotional state mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i mean the complex problems of today uh, require the wisdom of every team member yeah and it requires the team to be able to tap into that wisdom and their perspective and that's not an easy thing for teams to do I mean I find constantly that what happens is teams even ones that are working well and think they're working well, they actually have members because we have a you know a survey, the you know the Inspired Team Survey. You can dig yep. in, and you can see this. Um, they actually have members who have been quiet. They have a perspective that's not been heard. They have concerns that the team may not be hearing. And that is so common. And w one of the things that the Inspired Team Survey does is it allows you to see this disparity in um, team member perceptions and it allows the team to work on that. And actually, the better the team is working, the more of a danger it is that some people are going to be squashed. Yep. Because that team doesn't want to break what they have. Yep. And so when somebody raises a concern, they get worried because it feels negative to them. Yeah. I think a few things you said there. One thing that really made me a kind of a light bulb aha moment in the comparative Julie platform was when I could see how I can measure how much disagreement there is in the group. Mm -hmm. And it's great that if we all agree, but some things that I think there was a, a quote from Bill Gates. It was, um, if you want to double your success rate, double your failure rate. If you've got no failures and you've got no disagreements in your team, you're probably not getting the best out of them. You're probably not getting yep. that, that A level where people can actually get rid of the, 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 the dross and actually just get that, that, that really high quality um, refined outcome. 
Um, so I completely agree with everything you've said there. And I think it's, I mean, I think everyone can kind of empathize with that, that they want to be able to uh, productively engage in, in, in tough problems, in tough questions, but without right. levels of emotional literacy and trust, we're never going to get into those complex spaces. We're just going to sit, sit by and hopefully not upset the, the, um, the boat, not rocking the boat, but also we could just, it's easier to just sit silent than to um, get into any sort of negative conflict, which is based around ego or just, you know, um, mistrust in the team. Yeah, a a absolutely. And, and for me, it's, it's about setting the culture. It's, yes. about, it's about the norms by which people interact. And mm -hmm. so when we talk about conflict, it's an interesting term, right? So people have tried to categorize conflict, productive conflict, unproductive conflict, <laughs> relationship conflict, task conflict, all kinds of different ways to think about conflict. Yeah. I think about it, I, I think about it in terms of the ability of the team to bring out and process different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Now, there certainly can be conflicts that are not related to different perspectives. Um, and, and those, the way I think about them, is it's a lack of understanding. So if I don't trust you, there's, like I said, you know, five, 10% of the time, it might be because you're not trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And because you've done something really that destroys the trust. But most of the time, most of the time, it's because I don't understand you. I can't tell you how many times I've worked with cross-functional teams and one member has no clue what's going on in the other function. So they start to make up mm. stories about what's going on. Yep. That's what causes the unproductive conflict. So I don't think of it as conflict. I think of it as a lack of understanding. Um, mm. And, and the other type of conflict I think of as, um, you know, the ability to, to work with different perspectives. Yep. I, I actually find that a lot in, and it's something that I'm working on right now as well in my team is that, that clear understanding of, do you understand your craft and, and what role you play, but also do you understand how that contributes to the wider team and how, you know, how we work together? Um, I think it's understated. Um, do you know your position on the team and do you know how it contributes to, 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 to us all? Because it's only through that empathy that we can have a clear conversation around um, whether I could, look, I'd really appreciate it if you could improve this so it helps me and helps the team. Um, but a lot of the time, people don't really understand even what they do, let alone how it helps others. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely true. And they don't understand what their teammates do. Yeah. <laughs> and this is not only in a team and a cross-functional team. I mean, you can have this in, it's quite easy to, for uh, someone in the development team to go, oh, those, those, those crazy sales guys. And it's quite easy yeah. for them to go, well, you know, the, those, those developers don't know how the real market works. It's really, as you pointed out before, it's really about empathy, um, mm -hmm. understanding. Um, and, and, and trust comes from uh, believing that there's goodwill. We're all trying to work towards the same same team, same goals. We're all doing a little piece of the puzzle. And again, that comes back to alignment um, of, you know, making sure that we can clearly understand and trust each other that you're doing what you need to be doing and I'm doing what I need to be doing. But it, it, it's, it, 
almost just there, I can see I'm going down a rabbit hole of the, the, the infinite complexity of emotions and teams and, and individuals, which is the point we're trying to make here is that it's not, it's something which is implicitly just thought is going to happen when it nearly needs to be stewarded and, and, and talked about uh, within the team and across the organization. And, and, and by the way, all the things that you're talking about, the roles and the, and the purpose of the team and how it fits in, those are all part of the inspired teams framework. So, so when the team takes the survey, they will get a measure of how strong people understand their roles, how strong is the, is the common purpose that binds them together. That's part of it. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. We'll go straight. These are the, this is a very uh, high level overview, which we'll dive into each of these areas uh, in a minute, but just want to give us a, a, a short tour of, of these four quadrants. Short tour of what this is. Yes. Yeah. So there are 16 norms in the inspired teams framework. And there's four in each of these quadrants that make up these quadrants. So, so what are we looking at here? These quadrants are arranged on two axes. So if you think about what does it take to, to really have an effective team? Mm -hmm. In the end, you need energized team members. That's the energy side. Mm -hmm. And you need to make progress. I, I don't know. I can't think of anything else that a team needs to um to really be effective i mean there's a lot that goes into creating those yep but ultimately it's energized members and making progress mm -hmm. so that's the horizontal axis and for those technical people it's not a continuum it's just two discrete things that are that are placed in this um matrix to to create these quadrants mm -hmm. and if you think about it there's two different ways that you can create each of these. You, it, you can create energy by what you do. So team members can be motivated. For example, one of the things that teams don't do enough and it's so simple to do and it's very energizing is just demonstrate some appreciation for the hard work that your team yep. member is doing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's a doing type of way to create energy. You can also create energy or progress by the being of the team. And what do I mean by being its mindset, the set of values it holds, mm -hmm. um, the principles it operates by. So if you think about energy again just to give you an example we talked about challenges so what happens when a challenge comes in and the the team is is challenged right mm -hmm. the mindset of the team matters so I'm sure everyone has experienced these two different kinds of teams. You have one team, a challenge comes in and it's, oh my God, why are they doing this to us again? It's like, how are we ever supposed to get our work done? It's yep. like, what is going on, right? A very de-energizing way to see a challenge in a team. Yep. 
another type of team, a challenge comes in and it's like, okay, you know, this, this is something that we've done before. We can get through this. Let's get our heads together. Let's figure out how to move beyond this. Or it might even be, wow, you know, that's a, that's a change in requirement, but I, I can see where the customer really, you know, yep. would be better off with that. And we need to, we need to rethink what we're doing so we can, and it's a very energizing place to be. Mm -hmm. And so, and so the norms are arrayed um, into doing norms and uh, being norms, mm -hmm. which is how the team really thinks about itself and its values and who it is, who it is. Mm -hmm. Cool. So, so we first start with, well, not even, it's, this isn't even a sequential process, but I'll start in the top left. So we're engaging the team by making them feel, uh, well, well, giving them that, well, I, I've got to be very careful with my words here. We're not giving anyone motivation or anything like that. It's about how we feel inside that team, um, feel that engagement, feel the engagement with their work, feel the engagement with our team members, all those kinds of things. Right. So we're, we're coming up on the, on the quadrants. I don't know if you want to switch to those. Yeah, well, let's go there. Um, yeah. So, so this is um, engage the team. And what you'll see on the right-hand side are the four norms mm -hmm. that go into that quadrant. These four norms essentially, and I'm not gonna go into each one specifically, but what you are doing here is you are giving the work meaning. That's what purpose is. Ah, oh, okay. And acceptance in the team emotional intelligence framework i called that roles and responsibilities in the inspired teams framework i call it acceptance because i i rethought it a little bit if you want to engage team members you've got to support them to be the best that they can be yeah yeah. Okay. You need to you need to use all of their capabilities. You need to help them grow in the areas they want to grow in. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just about giving them a clear role. It's about crafting a role that maximizes, you know, their utilization. Their utilization is not the right word, but that that takes advantage of all their capabilities and that supports them. Yep. Right. So that gives the work meaning to people. And then the other piece of engaging the team is about creating relationships. And so the, the norm of understanding is probably the most important norm. It's the most highly correlated to performance of, of all the norms. Um, and it's about understanding your, your, your team members. And we talked a little bit about that, especially in cross-functional teams, people don't know what is going on in their teammates' life, in their function. Ah, yes, okay. Okay, and yep. so what happens is they start to make up stories. Yep. And they start to get in conflicts over these stories they're making up, which essentially have nothing to do with reality they just don't understand each other it, it's, it's justification it's not reality yeah it's it, exactly 
And so the norm of understanding, the team makes an effort to make sure that members know what's going on in the life of their team members. And in fact, some of the initial research um, we did after we kind of went over this with the team, they started to develop their own ways of creating that. Some teams actually did um, uh, field trips to the different functions to see what was going on. Other teams had team members do a 10 minute talk at the beginning of a meeting and talk about their function, but they started to build it in as a norm. Yep. Um, and the other it's funny that you bring this up because when you talk, I'm, or I'm flashing back to experiences my own where I've had a team member for acceptance. So a team member said to me, I'm not even sure the business wants me to be here. I'm not even sure like I'm wanted. Yeah. And that's where I can say, well, wait a minute, you're, you're employed, you were given the job, shouldn't that be enough? But no, if you don't feel accepted and a part of the team, like, do you, am I wanted to be here? It's exactly what we're talking about right here. And then finally, moving on to purpose is, you know, do people understand what I do and, and why I'm here? But even on another level, do I believe that? Do I understand why I'm here? And do I, am I committed to my craft? And am I given the opportunity to be the best I can be at that? And, 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 it, and it's more than just the individual, it's the team as a whole. Yes, yeah. What is the meaning very important. of the work that this team is doing, right? And so, and so the really, really, really good teams, we're not, it's not, you know, oh, we're just building another widget. I mean, there, I mean think about, think about um, you know, what Steve Jobs did at Apple. Yep. He, he didn't tell his people, oh, you know, you're just building a computer. Mm. No, it was, we're changing the world. We're going to put a computer on every desk. Mm -hmm. It is a very um, compelling purpose that the really best teams create for themselves. And I'm catching myself right now because what I just talked to you about was talking about individuals. Right. But you just brought it straight back to, wait a minute, what is the team's accepted? what is the team's purpose does people understand where the team is going and what's our mission um which absolutely is so both, easy to both are important by. yeah both are important right so the individual has to know how does my work fit into the larger purpose of the team? yes yeah yeah absolutely, absolutely. so if, if we are able to accept people for who they are um, and give them that space to you know this is your space you've earned on the team. This is, we, we understand you, you and I, you and I both understand the purpose of being here and the purpose of our team. Um, and we understand any sort of, you know, reservations or problems or et cetera that we get and how we're going to, any fears that we have as a team. Understand each we, other. Yeah. Yeah. Understand each other. Would we be getting to some level of engaging the team at that point? Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And then, and the the last part, caring. And let me let me just explain that a second. That's that's really validation, support, um, respect. It's not loving your team member. You could hate your team member if you want to, <laughs> but you know you need to really show some respect. You need to validate them. You need to support them to be the best that they can be. Yep. If you have to have the mindset, if they're not doing well. I'm failing yep. because I haven't supported them in the way that they need. And again, yep. 
again, you know, this is not a hundred percent. So yes, there are some people who are failing and it's their fault, but not as many as we attribute typically. So, so the answer is yes. If, if you have a purpose, if your work has meaning and your role has meaning and people are support, understand your strengths and weaknesses and are, are using your full capability, not pigeonholing you and are supporting you to be the best you can be, that's a pretty darn motivating and engaging environment to be working in. And a lot of tech companies use that in a different way. I know from my friends who work at Google, you're not hired for a role, you're hired for your, who you are. Mm-hmm. And we'll find the best place to apply those strengths and weaknesses in our organization. So it's almost a, a little shift in the way HR works is that right. every person has a unique set of strengths and weaknesses and there's going to be a way to apply them effectively to, for the be- benefit of them, but also the benefit of the company, not just to be in a role. Absolutely. And, and, you know, Google is a, is a great example. Unfortunately, there's, there's too many examples <laughs> that are not of that caliber. So, yeah, got it. So let, let's move on to the next uh, slide, enabling progress. So uh, we got here that the team examines actions to ensure that they add value and take care of uh, what the team is committed to actions that, that are not taken care of are not taking care of their commitments are deemed wasteful and eliminated, or their responsibilities to external commitments such as regulators are taken seriously. Um, right. Now, this, this actually, um, many aspects of this, the Agile community um, already has somewhat embodied, so the anticipate yes. block and remove waste. Um, you know, Agile does that especially if you're using Scrum, you know, every day, what, what's blocking you? And if yep. you, you know, uh, remember back to the diagram you showed on leadership, this is where the inverted pyramid comes in because that waste and those blocks that are impeding progress, some of them you can take care of at the team level, but some of them require support from higher levels and so that becomes the job of the leaders is to just remove the blocks that are impeding the progress of the team um the the other two things that you see here engage stakeholders no team is an island right and so you need to really create relationships outside of your team with people and teams that can support you, that can provide resources if necessary. Um, and then the, the one there that says create tools, this is one that's a little bit complicated and especially for a technical audience, um, a technical audience can misinterpret that, not misinterpret it, but narrowly interpret yeah. it. Yeah. To, be, to be software tool, you know, JIRA or whatever they are, yep. you know, mm-hmm. to help you. And those are certainly important. But when we're talking about teams, that create tools has two, two pieces to it, at least two pieces to it. So we talked about the difficulty that teams often have with, you know, emotionally difficult topics. Um, 
being able to bring them up, or if the team is really working well, being able to bring up concerns or anything negative? Yep. Well, it turns out, it turns out that culture provides tools for the team and it, happens to be that this is also true of national cultures, um, but it provides tools for the team to deal with those issues. So what do we mean by tools in a cultural sense? Language. Yep. So if the team finds itself in this routine, habitual, process or or mood right and it doesn't have a word for it it basically doesn't exist you cannot deal with it well it's not expressed and it's not processed then so yeah yes you have no way it's 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 it's, it essentially becomes invisible yeah you might be feeling it as an individual but it's stays internal because there's yes. no way to create a collective understanding. And so simply having a language and creating a word for a situation. And let me just give you an example. Um, a colleague of mine and I, we typically have very good conversations where we connect. Sometimes we just go on for an hour talking at each other and not connecting. Yes. <laughs> and you know, one day we, we stopped and we said, what is going on here? This is not a normal conversation for us. And we named it. We named it a ship's passing in the night conversation. Mm-hmm. So instead of what happened before, which was we would just do this occasionally and we'd do it for an hour and each of us would be getting agita inside and it just have no way to bring this out. After we named it, we could say, hey, you know, I think we're having a ship's passing in the night conversation. Yeah. It also turns out that we took the time, which is another resource, by the way, yep. another tool. Okay. So it's, an, it's another tool. Taking the mm-hmm. time. We took the time to understand what was going on there. And what we realized is we each had unconscious concerns that we were trying to get our colleague to recognize. And when they didn't recognize it, we just kept saying the same thing over, just unconsciously hoping they'd recognize it. Once we realized that, the next time we had that conversation, not only did we have a word for it, we're having a ship's passing in the night conversation, we had a tool. Mm -hmm. That tool was very simple. What's your concern? Mm. And I can't tell you how much time and energy and distress having those tools saved us. Yep. But that's, that's one um, aspect of tools that deals with the emotional process. And there's another aspect of tools that just deals with, you know, when you have a retrospective, for example, Sometimes it's like making a New Year's resolution, right? Well, we want, you know, this isn't working. We want to change this. 
And two weeks later, after you make your New Year's resolution, you've pretty much forgotten that you even made a resolution, let alone follow through on it, if you're like most people. And teams are the same way. They have really, really, really good intentions to take that learning and do something with it. But when you get back into the heat of the day-to-day -day work, it goes by the wayside. Yep. And so what a team can do for itself is create a tool. So mm -hmm. let me just give you another example to illustrate. Same colleague that I was talking to you about, we would often have these conversations and sometimes we'd go off on tangents and we wanted to fix that. And we kept saying, look, we got to stop these tangents. And we say, okay, let's, let's make sure we stop tangents. And the next meeting we went off on tangents. And we tried to create some tools to help us and we still went off on tangents. And we finally came upon a very, very simple tool. What we did was we wrote the word tangent on an index card. And if I was going to take a tangent, I had to play my tangent card. <laughs> so if you know what this tool does, first of all, the word tangent is right there in front of us. So it makes us aware of what we agreed to, that we don't want to take tangents. Yep. It creates a little bit of mindfulness mm -hmm. because I have to be aware of when I'm taking a tangent and play the card. Yep. And then we added a little social pressure to it. So if I didn't play the card and I went off on a tangent, my colleague would play the card, essentially calling me out. Yep. Something that you don't want to happen. That tool solve the problem to this day, to this day, if you watch me in a meeting, I don't play a tangent card, but I'll raise my hand and say, oh, I need to take a tangent. It's ingrained yep. in my body yep. to be aware of that. And so that kind of tool teams can create to help them follow through on their intentions. And I can go through a whole bunch of these, but I- Yeah, I think it's kind of the thing where you could, there's, well, firstly, they're not common. Like you've, you've had to create your own, right? So when someone comes from- Create their own, yes. Yeah, but when people go from organization to organization, it's the same thing with agile. It's you've learned agile in a, in, in a mindset, in a context. And then yeah. when you move to another space, you may take some of that with you, but what's really important is not what you do, but we're all aligned. We're all playing from the same playbook. So that's where it could actually fall, not to the individuals, but the organization to create these tools. And say, this well, is how we have conversations. This is how we deal with conflict tangents. That is why this is a norm. A norm means yes. this is the way we are. Yep. And so, yes, it's up to every individual in the team, not mm -hmm. just the leader, not just one person. It's up to every individual to reinforce this norm that we create tools when we want to change a habit. And so if the team says, well, we want to do that, somebody quickly raises their hand and say, okay, what tool are we going to create to help us? Mm -hmm. That's yep. what makes it a norm. Yep. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next thing. I think it's funny that this quadrant seems to sit so well inside the agile space and that's yep. where, but at the same time, it's easy to gloss it over because we just had a whole conversation there about creating, not just the, not just um, reducing waste, but there's, I mean, tools feels like it's a whole, uh, whole talk in itself, but um, you know, it, it is. Get, <laughs> yeah, the, the blocks and the waste are absolutely agile. They were actually in the team emotional intelligence framework before, I knew okay. about Agile, but Agile does that really, really well. Yeah, um, cool. Are, Which are, if uh, Agile fits into this as well, though, is the growth mindset of actually when we're faced with a challenge, how do we handle it? I think this comes back to what you're saying. Yeah, before. and this, this quadrant actually is the quadrant that's most inspired by Agile. Yep. So, so in this particular quadrant, just as a piece of information. The only norm that was in the team emotional intelligence minds uh, framework was the optimism one. Mm -hmm. The other three were added as a result of understanding what Agile is about and what Agile does. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this, this really is, um, it's about learning and dealing with uncertainty and creating possibility and innovating and creating breakthroughs is what really this, this quadrant is about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in order to do that, and, it, and again, this is in the mindset piece, right? So, so this is essentially how do we think about um, uncertainty? How do we think about challenges? Are we optimistic? How do we deal with failures? Mm -hmm. um, when things are uncertain, how do we deal with that? Do we experiment? Do we have curiosity about it? Yep. Uh, that type of mindset is what this quadrant is about. And it creates a world of possibility is, I, is something that I also tend to call this quadrant. Um, yeah. Because it, cre it creates breakthroughs and possibilities from, from operating here. Yeah. I think this is a very deep deck as well, because it's quite easy to say have a growth mindset, but it's not as easy as people feel, especially when there's a low safety culture. Um, you need to be able to say, look, have a growth mindset, um, have some curiosity. Well, the first thing, as you said before, when people have a challenge coming to them, it's like, well, oh, wait a minute, we could fail. Something could go wrong. And if that's the first reaction you have to challenge, it's not going to be very helpful in a constantly changing world with constant challenges, complex problems coming at you from a market, from a product, from a team point of view. So being able to have, a, uh, this is where it plays into other areas like psychological safety, where when we see a challenge, we're not immediately afraid of attacking that challenge. We're not immediately afraid of failing. And this is where you have a point here about managed failure, managed risk. Um, you know, it, it, it's a complex problem, but it's very almost... Um, uh, in how could I put it? It's a base foundational element of, of what everything here of how we feel when we first are uh, challenged. Uh, absolutely. And that's why, that's why I put it sort of in this mindset thing. It's really, um, you know, it, it's how we think about things. It's yep. Basically, you know, there, there's probably a little bit of doing, right? So, I mean, experimentation you know, it's how we think about it. Well, okay, let's do an experiment. But, you know, there's some doing to experimentation as well. But, yep. um, but it's mostly a mindset thing. When we don't know something, how do we deal with it? Do we yep. experiment? Do we try and, are we curious? Do we find out? But it's not something that just happens like that. 
It's actually sort of culture you build up over time. You have to actually go through failures. And this that's, is where values is really important. So go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the beauty of the survey. That's yes. the, the survey is so <laughs> right. important because all of these have to become habits. They have yes. to become norms. I use those words interchangeably, right? Yeah. So if you, if you, if you can become aware that, you know, we want to have an, a habit that says experimentation is a way we deal with uncertainty. And you've got a survey that says, wait a minute, you know, we're really not following through on that. You can start to deal and change with the change of the situation. And every individual, the next time something like we don't have information, they can say, okay, wait a minute, why don't we do an experiment? Mm -hmm. And that's how it starts to become a norm, become a habit, because everybody's yes. responsible for building that habit and calling out the team when it's not. Failure is extremely necessary in, in, in the modern world and what we've been talking about. So it's a, all about not, not if you, you are going to fail. That's, that's, a, that's a just going to happen. Right. It's how you fail. And, and I always say values are, are defined and lived by what happens at those points. You can say all you want around, um, we're a safe environment, you know, we, we invest in people, et cetera. But when things go wrong, how do you actually, what's the first reaction you have to that? And in much of the case here, if we're saying it's okay to fail, when people actually fail, we have to react in a way which is like, okay, great. What did we learn? Like use, have a process or a, a way that we go to that, which immediately reinforces the trust that we're trying to place in each other. Exactly. Exactly. So, so if, if you are aware that this is an important norm, exactly as you said, when there's a failure and it's in some organizational cultures, you know, there is a tendency to blame, right? You don't yep. want, mm -hmm. right? Because they haven't quite gotten the HR practices to focus on the team and they're still rewarding individuals. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> so when they, so when they, when an individual fails, they're thinking, oh, well, this is going to affect my review. Mm -hmm. So I better find somebody else to blame, even if it's unconscious. So that it doesn't affect me, right? And so when that starts to happen, the team members need to speak up. Now, wait a minute, let's learn from this. Let's figure out what we can do next time. How do we, yep. right? And somebody needs to speak up and support that person, a caring behavior, not let them feel like they've failed. Well, they've well my advice was to not let it just happen because it needs to be a planned out way of dealing with things. Cause the, the immediate thing, as you said, people will almost unconsciously go into fight or flight reflex. Yes. Um, whereas it's like, no, no, that's not how we do things. We have a process for failure almost. So like we, we, we gather information, we all sit in a room, we all give our feelings. Like that can't just be an afterthought. It needs to be a part of your culture and, th and thought out ahead of time. Absolutely. And if you really want to create a culture that celebrates it, do exactly that. <laughs> I mean, it might sound yeah. really, really silly, yep. but I've seen it done. I've seen it done. Yep. And I, I remember when I was a doctoral student, a story from Johnson & Johnson. It was a case study. And to make a long story short, an executive who, you know, eventually became the, the 
chairman of the board and CEO, whatever, um, he made like a hundred million dollar blunder. Yep. And General Johnson, you know, who was the owner at that time, called him into the office. He thought he was cooked. He said, congratulations. And the guy looks at him and goes, what are you talking about? He said, you just made a hundred million dollar learning. You know, you just had a hundred million dollar learning and go out there and use it and don't let it happen again. That story was transmitted throughout the entire organization yep. and created a culture that saw failure in a very, you know, positive learning type of way. And that's how you, that's how you do it. And you can it's amazing. That. That's, that's a story really hits on a, note, a lot of notes for me because the failure culture is not just something that someone made up. It, it's, it is the scientific method. It is the method of proving or disproving things because you can't just prove things. You need to disprove things as well. So yeah. um, I like the idea that, okay, yes, we have, and it might sound a bit wrong to some people, but we have a failure party because now we know something that we didn't know before, or we've disproven something. This will not work because of these reasons. Right. As you pointed out, the most important part is we're not going to do this again and again and again, making the same failure. That's probably going to get you into a bit of trouble. But if you've just learned something, share it widely. This is, this has been disproven. Therefore we can focus on proving something else. Right. And that, that reminds me of something that Thomas Edison said when somebody said, you know, isn't it depressing? You know, you've tried a thousand filaments, yeah. none of them work. And he goes, well, no, now I know a thousand ways not to make it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And this comes back to culture, especially at a team level and even organization level. Are you sharing that failure? Are you sharing that yeah. knowledge? Because if you're not, you're actually put setting everyone else up for failure when they make the same failure, when you could have helped them avoid it and saved cost, money, time for the whole organization. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the next one, which I believe is the final quadrant is mindful awareness. Yes. Um, and this is really quite introspective. So my, mindful awareness is um it, it has a lot in it right now um, yeah. and you know i also think about this it's it's an agile value in a way which is transparency mm-hmm. so this is this, this is the quadrant that makes information visible and there's lots of different kinds of information to be made visible and so some of that is individual performance. So for example, the really, really good teams, they are talking about individual performance. They're supporting each other. That's a caring yep. behavior, right? If somebody you know, is not doing well, somebody's helping them. Yep. Because if one person fails, the whole team fails. Yep. And so, and so they're talking about individual performance, making it collectively visible. They're mm-hmm. talking about team performance, and, and this is you know, something that Scrum and Agile do, do you know, regularly. Um, mm-hmm. But they're, they're, they're bringing it out in the open. How are we doing? What are we doing? How can we change? And, and you wouldn't believe how many teams that are not in an Agile environment don't do that. It's yep. pretty frightening. Um, visibility is... Uh, again, um, it's, it, it's from Agile, and it may not be the best, best term, but 
what I what I mean there is make the work visible, right? So so yep. you know, when you put your your burn down charts on the wall and when you put your your schedules on the wall and, and everything is visible for people to see is what that's really really about. What are we hiding and why are we hiding it? Is really this can't be understanding because it actually ties straight into the individuals that we see. When we talk to someone face-to-face, -face, um, like, like we are face-to-face -face and it's about the work, it can quite easily be easy to confuse the work for the person. Mm -hmm. And therefore it becomes hard to com have conversations, honest, really maybe even brutal conversations about the work and how it needs to change. I've found in my coaching, putting the work up on the wall allows us to collaborate much better because we're side, shoulder to shoulder looking at the work and the ideas and being able to collaborate on, on more effectively on um, unblocking and problem solving. Um, Absolutely. It may, it may seem like a simple step, but it actually has huge um, effects um, of, of creating that trust culture between team members. A absolutely and you can work on a problem you can see it it's not mm -hmm. hidden and, and yep. people can come together a absolutely and actually some of the really really forward-thinking organizations not so much teams but organization they actually make visible things that are taboo like salary mm -hmm. information yep now if you think about it it's like why are you hiding salary information? Because you don't want somebody to be upset? Well, if somebody's going to be upset, that must mean that you're not paying people right. Yep. So why not make it visible and just get it right? Yep. Um, the other piece of visibility is, is an individual piece. And that, that's um, making visible to the collective all of those internal assumptions and beliefs and thoughts and you know, what's bubbling up inside of you that's creating a reality that only are you are experiencing that needs to be shared among the team. Yep. And I will tell you um, that that is probably the greatest reason teams don't work well. And the way I put it, is that everybody is living in their own reality and it's yep. not a shared reality. Yep. And so that visibility also means create a shared reality. Easier said than done. I understand that. But that's the goal that the team really needs to I, I can't agree with you more. I mean, I've said the exact same thing when I'm coaching people. It's just that it's quite easy, especially in the way that we've started developing software in an agile, et cetera. Everyone's got their own little Jira queue with their own little tickets and they just work on those day to day. And it's almost this very siloed view, even though we're operating in this agile fashion. The moment I put everything up on the wall, though, and create visibility and context via a visual board, suddenly people are like, oh, wait a minute, here's the bigger picture. Do we all, because at the end of the day, you're in your stand up, you're actually looking across the board going, do we agree this is how the world actually is? Is this a proper uh, uh, representation of reality, as you put it? And if anyone's like, well, actually, I don't agree with that, it's like, wow, we just found out that we don't agree on something or, or we have different perspectives. Let's resolve that daily. Let's not yes. go for three months and then figure that out you know, later. Yes, and it, I, I, absolutely. And it also goes to what we were talking a little bit about in terms of understanding, because this is also, um, you know, I don't understand why, you know, you can't have your work done when we need it. Yeah. Instead of letting that sit inside, if you can 
get the concern out. And it, you know, it does take some skill here, um, but if you can get that concern out, the person can help. So this is where the norm of understanding comes in as yeah. well. Right? Yeah. So the, the, the idea is to understand each other. I don't understand what's going on. And the person can explain, my boss just threw 10 projects on me and told me that these are really, really critical. He doesn't care about this project we're working on. Yeah. And my, my bonus is not going to be affected if I don't get that work done. Yeah. Right. And so now all of a sudden there's a little empathy and people can understand each other a little yep. bit better. So it's, it's making that type of thing visible as well. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so that's it. I think we're coming to the, to the end of the four quadrants. Um, uh, but if we just back up a little bit, there they all are. Engage the team, enable progress, growth mindset, mindfulness. And, and just walking through this um, with you, it's made it so clear how this isn't just an agile thing. And I really want to underline that. This tool can be used across any team in any organization. It will almost inherently bring some agility to your team, which is what yeah. a lot of companies are looking for. They, they, they may be in a legal, uh, for, maybe in a legal space or a um, and accounting space, etc., and they just want to take on some more agility into their organization. But they, can't, you know, obviously you can't run Scrum or something like that in those in those teams. But the, the idea of the ideals and the mindset, I think, is fully present inside the Inspired Teams framework, and allows for that um, understanding of how to create more team, more autonomous teams, more emotionally literate teams, and and how to create, have them engage around complex problems. Yeah, and I, I just want to add add one thing. Because when you talk about an emotionally literate team, it may not be so obvious how it creates that. And you talked about psychological safety and uh, we talk about trust and that kind of thing. When you operate with these norms, you build psychological safety. It's yes. not something that you know you work on separately. It is an emergent property from the interactions that are created with these norms. You build trust, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you build team identity, okay? And so, so that helps the emotional life in the team as well because these kinds of interactions build an emotionally healthy team. Yes, I think that's important because it's the same with Agile and the fact of, oh, can we just turn Agile on? Are we Agile now? Can you give us a checkbox for that? Um, things like trust and psychological safety are never done. They're always being built and they're always being eroded and they always require constant attention. Otherwise, it's a regression. We'll just fall back into a puddle of mud. Um, which is why actually, I mean, using Inspired Teams and especially using it in, in collaboration with Comparative Agility, you can regularly get a, a, a beat on that over time and see directions in, in people's, in teams, uh, in organizations, and, and we can compare them against each other, the, yeah. the actual team versus the overall organization, et cetera, and really help you towards that journey, which is why it's a great, it's a great tool. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's certainly useful to do the comparisons, which, um, you know, the comparative agility tool allows you to do. But I would also, you know, suggest to teams, don't get too tied up in the comparisons because every, every team is, is different. Compare yourself at time one to yourself at time two. Yes. And are you improving and are you building in the areas where you want to build? Yeah. 
I think that's an important thing. You don't compare team to team. You compare yourself. Are you, are you getting better day to day? It'll give you some idea. But just because you're better than the average in a certain place doesn't mean that you don't want to work on it. Correct. Or just be, because you're below average doesn't mean you need to work on it. You really need to think about what's right for your team. Yep. And you can use those comparisons, but don't get too hung up on them. Well, that's a part of the comparative agility cycle, as you can see on the website, is that this is only, once you've done the assessment, that's the beginning. That's, that's the start. The, the most important part is what you do with that information. And you're not going to do everything at once. You're most likely going to pick one thing and have that as a conversation amongst your team around. So yeah. we all felt that this was something to work on. What, what's the one thing we can do to improve that? And then a couple months later, keep on doing that. So. Right. And you can see whether or not you succeeded. That's the yes. beauty of it. Because it allows again, you to And again, have another conversation and, and keep right. going. So. <laughs> anyway, that's it. Uh, thank you for your time today, Steve. Um, even it was, I actually learned an awful lot. And it's great to see how these different frameworks and different modes of thinking are actually gelling together when it comes to our day-to-day -day lives on the ground, especially with teams. I think it's something that I've always underestimated and learning more about the energy systems and how teams are, I'm not sure if it's a, it's always been this way or it's a way that it's happening in this agile world, but really, really important to, to lean into those team conversations, lean into the emotions and give them the space and time that they deserve. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for your time, have a great day. Well, you're welcome. Bye. Bye.